Hello, James Kenny here, and welcome to my podcast, Land of the Golden Sunset, the evolution of the Irish from biblical times. This is episode number 14, and I'd just like to remind you that you can become a patron of these podcasts by visiting www.landofthegoldensunset.podbean.com. I hope you like it. Thank you. A new Irish Parliament was called in 1695 with Lord Justice Henry Capel. Catholics were entirely unrepresented, and so the Protestant Parliament had a long series of penal laws passed. They reenacted those portions of the Acts of Settlement and Explanation, which disqualified Catholics from being members of corporations, from voting for such and even from inhabiting in corporate towns. They were also forbidden to have schools and colleges. And if they sent their children abroad to be educated in a Catholic college or convent, they were at once placed outside the pale of citizenship and rendered incapable of being guardians or executors or administrators, of filling any office, of inheriting property, and furthermore, they forfeited all the real and personal property which they already possessed. After the 1st of March 1692, no Catholic could have arms or ammunition, and if it were suspected that he had any such, two magistrates might search his house. If he concealed arms after that date, he was, for the first offence, fined and imprisoned. For the second offence, he could be summoned before a magistrate for sentence of death. A few noblemen, specially included in the Articles of Limerick and Galway, or those specially licensed, could carry a sword and pistol. In addition to this, no gunsmith could take a Catholic apprentice, nor could any Catholic possess a horse of value more than five pounds. No matter how valuable, he must sell it for the amount, if offered, by his Protestant neighbour. And... There was also an act prohibiting Catholic church holidays. Henry Capel, 1st Baron Capel of Teaksbury, 1638-1696. In 1695 and 96, Henry Capel was Lord Deputy of Ireland. He died aged 58 in Chapelizard, County Dublin, and was buried on the 8th of September 1696 in Little Haddam, Hertfordshire. The barony died with him. Capel Street, Dublin, is called after his older brother Arthur Capel, who was Lord Lieutenant of Ireland, 1672 to 1677. Henry Capel was succeeded by Henry de Massou, 2nd Marquis de Rivigny, Earl of Galway, 1648 to 1720. He was a French Huguenot soldier and diplomat who was influential in England during the Nine Years' War, and the War of Spanish Succession. In July 1691, de Masso distinguished himself at the Battle of Ockram, and in 1692, he was for a time Commander-in-Chief of William's Army in Ireland. In November of that year, he was created Viscount Galway and Baron Port Arlington, 
and received a large grant of seized estates in Ireland. The title had previously belonged to Ulick Burke, first Viscount Galway, a Jacobite officer who had been killed at Ockram. The Massu's last service was rendered in 1715, when he was sent as one of the Lord Justices to Ireland. As most of his property in Ireland had been restored to its former owners, and all his French estates had long before been forfeited, Parliament voted him pensions amounting to £1,500 a year. He died unmarried in 1720, and the Irish peerage died with him. Henry de Massu was more bitter and bigoted than Capel, and in 1690, having been exiled from France with his fellow Huguenots, he entered the service of William III of England as a major general, and when he opened the Irish Parliament in 1697, the Catholics had to face a fresh crop of penal laws. One law passed commanded all bishops, vicar generals and priests to quit the country before May the 1st, and if they returned, they were guilty of high treason. For concealing such a religious person, the penalty was a heavy fine and forfeiture of goods and land. To bury the dead in an old ruined church or monastery was also punishable by a fine. If a Protestant heiress married a Catholic, she suffered the loss of all her property, which was then transferred to her Protestant next of king. Any clergyman performing such a marriage suffered a heavy fine. Further, those who refused to work on Catholic church holidays were liable to fines and whipping. Despite what had been agreed in the Articles of the Treaty of Limerick, an Outlawries Act was passed, whereby all the estates of those who had been killed in rebellion or who had died in foreign service were declared forfeit. In the session of 1698, an act was passed prohibiting the export of wool to any country except England. This measure affected all sheep herders, regardless of religion. But only one member of Parliament, William Molyneux, 1656-1698, protested. A commission appointed to consider the question of the recently forfeited estates said some papists were treated with leniency and pardoned too easily. King William of Orange had made some enormous grants to his friends, particularly to his mistress, Elizabeth Hamilton, the Countess of Orkney, who in 1696 founded Middleton College, a grammar school in County Cork. By the Act of Resumption, 1700, in the English Parliament, all such grants were declared void and appropriated to the public revenue. King William was so enraged, and though he gave his assent to the law, he prorogued Parliament. William III had further reason to be angry in the next year, when King Louis XIV of France, at the deathbed of James II, recognised James's surviving son as King of England. Since James II had won the race when he fled from the Boyne and Ireland, he had lived a pensioner in France at Saint-Germain. This deliberate insult to William of recognising the young prince was regarded as an act of war, and as such it was understood 
in England. They were not going to adopt the recommendation of the French king and roll out a red carpet to accept a young Catholic heir as their king. James's son, James Francis Edward, led a rising in Scotland in 1715, shortly after George I's accession, but was defeated. Jacobites rose again in 1745, led by Charles Edward Stuart, James II's grandson, and were again defeated. Since then, no serious attempt to restore the Stuart heir has been made. Charles's claims passed to his younger brother Henry Benedict Stuart, the Dean of the College of Cardinals of the Catholic Church. Henry was the last of James II's legitimate descendants and no relative has publicly acknowledged the Jacobite claim since his death in 1807. When William of Orange died on the 17th of March 1702 in London, the settlement of the crown had already been made in favour of James II's younger daughter Anne, and the childless Protestant King William of Orange was succeeded by his Protestant sister-in-law, Queen Anne. The Act of Settlement provided that, if the line of succession established in the Bill of Rights were extinguished, the crown would go to a German cousin, Sophia, Electress of Hanover, and to her Protestant heirs. When Anne died in 1714, less than two months after the death of Sophia, she was succeeded by George I, Sophia's son, the Elector of Hanover, and Anne's second cousin. On the 16th of September 1701, James II died, aged 67, of a brain hemorrhage at Saint Germain. His heart was placed in a silver gilt locket and given to the convent of Chalot, and his brain was placed in a lead casket and given to the Scots College in Paris. His entrails were placed in two gilt urns and sent to the parish church of Saint Germain in Laye and the English Jesuit College and Saint Omer while the flesh from his right arm was given to the English Augustinian nuns of Paris. The rest of James's body was laid to rest in a triple sarcophagus, consisting of two wooden coffins and one lead. At St. Edmund's Chapel, in the church of the English Benedictines in the Rue Saint-Jacques in Paris, James was not buried but put in one of the side chapels, Lights were kept burning round his coffin until the French Revolution in 1734. The Archbishop of Paris heard evidence to support James's canonization, but nothing came of it, and during the French Revolution, James's tomb was raided. During the reign of George I, 1714 to 1727, the powers of the monarchy diminished, and Britain became a transition to a modern system of cabinet government led by a prime minister. Towards the end of his reign, actual political power was held by Robert Walpole, now recognised as Britain's first de facto prime minister. George died of a stroke on a trip to his native Hanover, where he was buried. He is the most recent British monarch to be buried outside the United Kingdom. In Ireland, the Catholics knew and anticipated further repressive legislation, and in 1704, a bill to prevent the further growth of popery was passed into law. 
it aimed more at Catholic property than their religion. If a son of a Catholic landholder became Protestant, his father forthwith became his tenant for life. The converted son was placed under the guardianship of his Protestant relative, and at his father's death, the whole property became his. No Catholic could inherit property from a Protestant, nor could he purchase landed estate, or rents, or profits arising out of a land or hold a lease for more than 31 years. And if the farm yielded a profit amounting to more than one-third of the rental, any Protestant could eject him and claim the property. A special committee was appointed by the Irish House of Commons in 1707 to see how the law regarding intermarriages was carried out. A Catholic could not marry a Protestant. A Catholic, having only Catholic children, was bound at his debt to divide his land equally among them in equal shares. No Catholic could fill any office, however small, without taking the oath of abjuration. Nor could any live in Galway or Limerick, except seamen, fishermen, and day labourers. Pilgrimages to holy wells were forbidden under pain of a fine or whipping. Churches were forbidden to have a cross, bell, steeple, and only one secular clergy to each parish, who was bound to be registered. By an act passed in 1708, no Catholic could be a juror, except in cases where Protestants were not available, and in 1709 an amendment was passed, under which Catholics were prohibited from purchasing annuities or from teaching school, either as principal or assistant. When a Catholic son turned Protestant, his father was at once bound to discover on oath the full value of his estate. And forthwith, the Lord Chancellor set aside a maintenance for the son. A like provision was passed for a Catholic wife who abandoned her husband's religion. In the following year, all priests were bound to take the oath of abjuration. To refuse meant transportation for the first offence, and debt for the second. By another bill, which was not passed, it was proposed that all priests should be compelled to quit the kingdom, and if they refused, they would be taken and castrated. The bill was sent to England, and warmly supported by the Viceroy, 1720-1724, Charles Fitzroy, the second Duke of Grafton, but this bill was never returned. Edmund Burke said, As well fitted for the oppression, impoverishment, and degradation of a feeble people, and the debasement in them of human nature itself, as ever proceeded from the perverted ingenuity of man. From a land blighted by such laws, thousands of young people went, year after year, in ever-flowing streams, carrying in their hearts the bitter memory of wrong. They sought and found in foreign lands a home and sometimes fame and fortune. Those who remained gradually sank to the level of paupers, travelling from town to town, begging for a crust and selling small wares and doing menial works. Statistics from the period show that there were 30,000 such homeless. Arthur Dobbs, surveyor of Ireland from 1733 to 43, and who later became governor of North Carolina, suggested that the workhouses should be built 
and meanwhile those who were found begging outside the area of their own parish should be whipped. His neighbour and family friend, Jonathan Swift, said they should be forcibly driven out. And George Berkeley, Bishop of Cloyne, 1734-53, suggested that the able-bodied should be put to work, loaded with chains. Jean-Baptiste Colbert, finance minister to King Louis XIV of France, a century earlier said, The art of taxation consists in so plucking the goose as to obtain the largest amount of feathers with the least possible amount of hissing. Quesney, on the other hand, believed that the French goose, that is, French society and its economy, had been plucked so hard that it was practically bald. And a few decades later, the goose hissed loudly and rose up in revolution. Compared to Britain, France's agriculture was backward and unproductive. The peasant farmers were living a wretched existence, full of poverty and famine. Quesney blamed the high taxes imposed on the farmers, which went to the royal court and the aristocrats. In contrast, the wealthy clergy and aristocrats didn't pay taxes at all. France spent lots of money fighting wars and needed even more to pay for the king and noblemen's splendid castles, banquets and jewellery. In 1760, the Marquis de Mirabeau, in his book The Theory of Taxation, proposed that taxes on France's peasant farmers be done away with and the aristocrats taxed instead. The king was furious and had him locked up. Meanwhile in Ireland, William King the Archbishop of Dublin, in 1718, wrote to a friend that the misery of the people here is very great, the beggars innumerable and increasing every day. One half of the people in Ireland eat neither bread nor flesh for one half of the year, nor wear shoes or stockings. Your hogs in England and Essex calves lie and live better than they. How much worse must conditions have been in 1729 when Ireland lay in the grip of a famine resulting from three years in a row of bad harvests? And yet Jonathan Swift surely had a point when he remarked that the three seasons wherein our corn hath miscarried did no more contribute to our present misery than one spoonful of water thrown upon a rat already drowned would contribute to his death. Swift was skating in his attack on bankers in 1728, describing them as a necessary evil in a trading country, but so ruinous to ours, who for private advantage have sent away all our silver and one-third of our gold. He also sarcastically expressed his desire for a law to be enacted to hang up half a dozen bankers every year and thereby interpose at least some short delay to the further ruin of Ireland. The large farmers found that livestock and pasture land for grazing paid handsomely, but the tenants were severely affected by the loss of tillage, and Parliament, knowing this, proposed a law that 5% of the acreage should be under tillage. The English farmers dreaded competition from the Irish, and not for years was consent given. 
the Protestant Parliament in Dublin then went further and passed an act freeing pasture lands from tithes. This measure was followed as it had been preceded by famine, and in 1727-28, and again in 1742, whole districts were affected. These tithes were due to the Protestant Church of Ireland and its clergy. To anyone who would not or could not pay, the tithes were often seized by force and given to the local Protestant minister. As many landlords and farmers switched to raising cattle, labourers and small tenant farmers were forced off the land. In response, the white boys developed as a secret society among the peasantries. Initially, their activities were limited to specific grievances, and the tactics used were non-violent, such as knocking down fences and the levelling of ditches that closed off common grazing land. But as their numbers increased, so did the violence. Their action was not specifically political, as it was not directed against the government, but against the local landlords. The famine of 1740-41 to was due to extremely cold and then dry weather in successive years, resulting in food losses in three categories. A series of poor grain harvests, a shortage of milk and frost damage to potatoes. At this time grains, particularly oats, were more important than potatoes as staples in the diet of most workers. Death from mass starvation in 1740-41 to were compounded by an outbreak of fatal diseases. The cold and its effects extended across Europe, but mortality was higher in Ireland because both grain and potatoes failed. It is estimated to have killed between 13 and 20% of the 1740 population, which was a proportionately greater loss than during the Great Famine yet to come in 1845-52. to 52. The repeated famines were depressing, even for the well-fed Protestant landlords, and the industry of the merchant class was hampered by laws against exporting to England. Their industrial capacity sought for an outlet in other lands. The floods of emigration from those descendants of the original planters from Ulster reached a total of 12,000 a year. Presbyterians as well as Protestants went to Germany, some settled in Rouen, and were well received by Louis XV. Others went to the West Indies and some to Virginia, North Carolina, and New England, according to Cambridge Modern History of the United States. For whatever reason, the Catholics and their priests suffered in silence, and while their numbers increased, even after all the penal laws, their welfare did not. But most of the people and their priests stood firm. In 1728, Hugh Bolter, 1672-1742, was the Church of Ireland Archbishop of Armagh, and primate of all Ireland, from 1724 until his death. He also served as the chaplain to George I from 1719, and he had to lament that there are 3,000 priests in Ireland, and that Catholics were five to one in proportion to Protestants, and that the descendants of Cromwell's soldiers had gone over to Popery. Arthur Young, 1741-1820, to calculated 
that to convert the Irish to Protestantism, taking the figures from the rate of progress in the past, would take 4,000 years, if ever. Visitors from abroad, such as Young in the late 1770s, also deplored the penal laws as being contrary to the spirit of the Age of Enlightenment and illogical as they were enforced. In his Tour of Ireland 1780, that was sponsored by many landlords, Young mentioned the penal laws. The cruel laws against the Roman Catholics of this country remain the marks of illiberal barbarism. Why should not the industrious man have a spur to his industry, whatever his religion? The priests went around disguised from the bounty hunters. The primate lived in Louth as plain Mr. Ennis. And the Bishop of Kilmore, who was a musician, travelled around as a piper. Many lived in the sheltered recesses of woods and mountains. The Archbishop of Tume addressed his letters from his place of refuge in Connemara. Mass was said in fields in Kilmore and under the old ash tree in Ballisadare in Sligo. Often when the priest said Mass, he wore a veil so that those when caught could say they did not see his face and therefore were unable to tell his name. The provost of Bandon, catching a priest administering the sacraments to a dying woman, brought him to the nearest crossroads and without trial had him hanged. In 1708, Priests, found hiding in Galway, were stripped and publicly whipped, according to William E. H. Lecky. Yet neither terrors or threats prevailed. A few priests who had a problem with drink accepted bribes, and some people, allured by wealth or position, changed their religion. And that was all. The majority stood firm, even though their lands had been unjustly confiscated. Wealth they had none. Politically and socially, they were degraded outcasts. But the penal laws had been ineffective in degrading them morally as well. They had learned to hate the government and to glory in the violation of law. Accustomed to the spy and informer, they had become suspicious of everyone, even their best friends. Their manliness of character was to some extent undermined. The close union between priests and people was touching and the tenacity with which, in the face of terrible trials, they clung to the faith they loved is unparalleled. Yet, while attached to their own religion, they were very tolerant of others. During so many sorrows, it was hard to be jolly, but the natural humour of the Irish asserted itself. Dancing was universal among the clans from the earliest times, and music and song had its sessions but the miserable conditions brought forth only sad songs and ballads. They believed that deliverance would come in God's good time, and as if in answer to their prayers, it did come 15 years later. An act was passed substituting the oath of allegiance for that of supremacy. A dawn of hope had arrived for Catholics, and a confession of failure for their oppressors. When the Dublin Parliament saw that they were being relegated to the inferior position of a mere committee of the London Parliament, a strong spirit of resistance began to appear. Though they were papists, says Grattan, these men are not slaves. When the following enactments by the English House appeared, it stung the Irish into action. 
that the king's majesty, by and with, the consent of the lords and commons of Great Britain, in Parliament assembled, ought to have full power and authority to make laws and statutes to bind the people of the Kingdom of Ireland. This rough and insulting assertion of subjugation stung the Protestants. They submitted, but soon from amongst their members some began to murmur the words country and patriotism. Others considered them insane when they spoke of recovering the freedom of Parliament. Their leader was the very Reverend Jonathan Swift, Protestant Dean of St. Patrick's. In 1759, a rumour was heard in Dublin that a legislative union was being contemplated based on that just accomplished in Scotland. On December 3rd, the citizens rose and surrounded the House of Parliament. They stopped the carriages of members and obliged them to swear opposition to such a measure, and so the union scheme was abandoned. It was now perceived that the great infatuation for England within the pale had waned. Jonathan Swift, 1667-1745, to was an Anglo-Irish satirist, essayist, political pamphleteer, first for the Whigs, then for the Tories, and subsequently for Henry Grattan, Wolfe Tone, and the United Irishman. An Anglican cleric who became Dean of St. Patrick's Cathedral, Dublin, Swift is remembered for works such as A Tale of a Tub, An Argument Against Abolishing Christianity, Gulliver's Travels, and A Modest Proposal. Dean Swift was born in Dublin of English parents in 1667 and spent his time between England and Ireland. He studied at Trinity College, Dublin, and took a master's degree at Hertford College, Oxford. He received deacon's orders in October 1694 and priest orders three months later. In summer 1699, he accompanied Charles Berkeley, second Earl of Berkeley, to Ireland as chaplain and private secretary on the Earl's appointment as one of the Lord Justices. And Swift continued his service as chaplain under two later viceroys, possibly Lawrence Hyde and James Fitzjames Butler. In 1699 to 1700, he was made vicar of Larracar near Trim, County Meath, and later in 1712 as dean of St. Patrick's Cathedral, Dublin. Jonathan Swift died on the 17th of October 1745, aged 78 years. After being laid out in public view for the people of Dublin to pay their last respects, he was buried in his own cathedral by the side of Esther Johnson in accordance with his wishes. It is not known if Swift and Esther were married. The bulk of his fortune, £12,000, was left to found a hospital for the mentally ill, originally known as St. Patrick's Hospital for Imbeciles, which opened in 1757, and which still exists as a psychiatric hospital. In 1720, the whole of England became involved with what has since become known as the South Sea Bubble. In return for a loan of seven million to finance the war of Spanish succession against France, the House of Lords passed the South Sea Bill, which allowed the South Sea Company, a joint stock company created as a public-private partnership in 1711, a monopoly 
in trade with South America. The company underwrote the national English debt, which stood at 30 million, on a promise of 5% interest from the government. Shares immediately rose to 10 times their value. Speculation ran wild, and all sorts of companies, some lunatic, some fraudulent, or just optimistic, were launched. For example, one company floated was to buy the Irish bogs, another to manufacture a gun to fire square cannonballs, and the most ludicrous of all, for carrying on an undertaking of great advantage, but no one to know what it is. An unbelievable £2,000 was invested in this one. The country went wild. Stocks increased in all these and other dodgy schemes, and huge fortunes were made. Then the bubble in London burst. The stocks crashed and people all over the country lost all of their money. Porters and ladies' maids, who had bought their own carriages, became destitute overnight. The clergy, bishops and the gentry lost their life savings. The whole country suffered a catastrophic loss of money and property. Suicides became a daily occurrence. The gullible mob, whose innate greed had lain behind this mass hysteria for wealth, demanded vengeance. James Craggs, the postmaster general, took poison. And his son, also James Craggs, who was the Secretary of State, avoided disaster by fortuitously contracting smallpox and died. The South Sea Company persuaded investors to exchange their state annuities for the greatly overvalued stock, which rose as high as 1,000 during the summer of 1720 and fell to 124 in December. After the collapse of the bubble, it was learned that Craig Sr. and other government officials had accepted large bribes from the company's directors. The South Sea Company directors were arrested and their estates forfeited. There were 462 members of the House of Commons and 112 peers in the South Sea Company who were involved in the crash. Frantic bankers thronged the lobbies at Parliament and the Riot Act was read to restore order. As a result of a parliamentary inquiry, John Esleby, Chancellor of the Exchequer, and several members of Parliament were expelled in 1721. King George I also became involved, as his two mistresses, the Countess of Darlington and the Duchess of Kendal, were heavily involved in the South Sea Company and were blamed by the ordinary people as being responsible. Robert Walpole, who had been against the South Sea Company from the beginning, took charge and sorted out this terrible financial mess. He was made Chancellor of the Exchequer, and he divided the national debt that had been the South Sea Company into three, between the Bank of England, the Treasury, and the Sinking Fund. The Sinking Fund was made up of a portion of the country's income that was put aside every year, and eventually stability returned to the country. Finally, the South Sea Company was restructured and continued to operate for more than a century after the bubble. The headquarters were in Threadneedle Street, at the centre of the city of London, the financial district of the capital. At the time of these events, the Bank of England was also a private company dealing in national debt, and the crash of its rival confirmed its position 
as the bankers to the British government. 